Hi, I'm Democratic strategist Allie Lapp. And I'm Republican strategist Liesl Hickey. Welcome to House Talk with Allie and Liesl, where we dig into U.S. House races and the fight for control in 2018. We are so excited to have Dave Wasserman with us today on House Talk. Uh, Dave is the House Editor for the Cook Political Report, where he's responsible for handicapping and analyzing U.S. House races. Um, prior to joining the Cook Political Report, David was, for three years, the House Editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball, which was founded by renowned UVA professor Larry Sabato. And I think you went to UVA, too. Is that right? That's right. All right. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, and you are a native of New Jersey. Which part of New Jersey are you from? I'm from Montgomery, New Jersey, which is near Princeton. Actually, our claim to fame uh, was that we had a guy on our school board who was a Princeton economics professor by the name of Ben Bernanke. And uh, the only thing I've ever run for in my life is the student member of the school board. So uh, I, I like to, to say that I was on the board with, uh, with the chairman. That's excellent. Well, we couldn't ask for a better person to join us today to talk about the state of house races. And in particular, we're excited to talk about maybe how this cycle is shaping up vis-a-vis -vis other, you know, competitive midterm elections that we've seen in all of our political careers. Like us, Dave, I guess it'd be fair to call you a house race junkie. <laughs> you spent your I think whole... this is a podcast I could get into. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, how, how did you fall in love with house races? I mean, obviously, Ali and I uh, have worked with you for a really long time, and I think there really is no better uh, handicapper in the country. And, and how, did you, how did you fall in love with house races? Well, do you, are you sure, sure you want the story? <laughs> yes, yes. So we want you to go there. <laughs> it, it, it started when I was 11. And literally, I was bored one day watching TV and flipping through the channels, and I came upon C-SPAN. Both of my parents actually were food scientists who taught at Rutgers. And so they weren't involved in politics at all. But I found the floor debates uh, in the House to be fascinating. And pretty soon it turned into a game where I would write down the names and the states and the parties of every member that I'd see, and it became like Pokemon. I had to catch them all. <laughs> wow. And for my, for my 13th birthday, I actually asked my parents for a subscription to the Cook Political Report because actually I'd seen Charlie Cook on Washington Journal, and they looked up how much it was a year, and they refused to get it for me. So <laughs> what I did was I went to the, the town library, and I would read the Almanac of American Politics because I was, I was curious how these people got where they were. And there were three moments that kind of solidified that this is what I wanted to do. And the first was we had a middle school project where we had to write a letter or an email to someone whose career we admired. And so I had read Stu Rothenberg's columns and I wrote an email to Stu Rothenberg. And to his credit, he responded and gave me some advice on how to get into this field. And then the second was, I just happened to be living in New Jersey's 12th district, which was the site of the biggest upset of 1998 when a Princeton plasma physicist named Rush Holt unseated a guy named Mike Pappas, who you might remember saying this ditty in praise of Ken Starr on the floor of the house. And I found it fascinating in a, in a Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of way. And then the third was, I was watching PBS one night and I came upon this documentary called A Perfect Candidate. And it was about the 1994 Virginia Senate race between Ollie North and Chuck Robb. And that set off this strange fascination with Virginia politics. And I made it my mission to go to UVA. Uh, and when I got there in my first year, I uh, attended a presentation by Larry Sabato. He gives mm -hmm. this crystal ball presentation before every election. And I, I actually bet him 
on a house race. I bet him $10 on Indiana's 7th District in 2002. And I ended up winning the bet, and he wrote me a handwritten letter in, in response uh, asking if I would, would be the house editor for the crystal ball because he had been on the road so much giving speeches and he needed someone to track these things. And so from there, uh, you know, I, that's pretty much what I've been doing ever since. I've, I've, I've considered it a dream job. And I think the funny thing about it is a lot of D.C. reporters, a lot of young people getting into this business see the House beat as a stepping stone to covering the Senate or, or being embedded on a presidential campaign. And what I admire about you guys, and I feel the same way, is I find the House fascinating, and I think you guys do too, and the complexity of how districts are drawn, the, the hand-to-hand combat in the districts and the races that sneak up on you at the last minute. I find it all fascinating. And, and also, just one more, more element of, of covering House races that I love. I think that they can give us such great insight into larger trends. And in 2016, I think all of us were picking up signs in the late polling uh, in House races because, of course, you know, the parties and you guys who, who are consuming all of this data on a district-by-district basis, we were seeing movement that was not being picked up in state-level polling. And to me, I, I think it, it was evidence that was kind of right under our noses overlooked by a lot of other people who weren't focused on on congressional districts. Yeah, that's right. Well, and look, back in 2006, I was at the DCCC. I was the director of incumbent protection, and then I moved over to the independent expenditure. I was the deputy director there. And I remember we went through our entire IE staff and tried to make predictions as to how we went race by race and then sort of averaged out what was the prediction of how many we were actually going to pick up. And I don't think anybody nailed it on the nose and got 29, which is what we picked up that election night. But apparently you did. So you're a perfect person to talk to us about 2006 and the comparison that we see today, 12 years later in 2018. So can you talk to us a little bit about some of the most striking similarities and differences you see between where we are for 2018 and what happened in 2006 when the Democrats ended up taking the majority back? Yeah, you know, I I think the biggest similarity that I see is that there's an enthusiasm gap uh, between the two parties, right? We, We saw in 2009, Republicans picking up all these seats in the Virginia House of Delegates going on to take back the House. Democrats exceeded expectations in special elections this year. They exceeded expectations in Virginia across the board in the governor's race in the House of Delegates. And, you know, if you take an average of the five House specials we've seen this year, Democrats in those races have received an average of 71% of Hillary Clinton's votes. Republicans have received an average of 63% of Donald Trump's votes. If you narrow it down to the most competitive races, that differential is even larger. So Democrats are simply really fired up and Republicans not so much. And and this is a mirror image of what we saw in 2009. The other thing I'd, I'd say is similar is that check and balance voters are migrating to the party out of power. And there were a lot of voters who went to the polls in 2016 thinking that Hillary Clinton would win the election. And they decided, you know what, I don't like either candidate, but if she's going to win, I'm going to vote for a Republican as a check on her power. And we're seeing that check and balance voter move to the Democratic column. 
And, and much in the same way as we saw Republicans run successfully on that argument that there should be a check on Obama in, in 2010. So I think those two things are very similar. The biggest difference that I, I would see is that in, uh, in, in the mid-2000s, in the last decade, there were far more competitive districts than there are now. In fact, we've, we've tracked at the, at the Cook Report that in 1997, there were 164 districts that were competitive in terms of their partisan makeup that were within five points of the national average. And that's fallen 56 percent in the last 20 years to just 72. And so Democrats have to win a much higher percentage of the competitive seats to win the House than they used to. But President Trump's approval rating is lower than, uh, than Obama's was in 10. Well, and to that point, in 2006, no Democrats lost, Democrat incumbents lost. This cycle, we have nine Democrats sitting in Trump uh, one districts. Do you see them being able to hold those districts? Because as I agree, there's an enthusiasm gap uh, with Republicans, but in, in a lot of places, in these districts, I don't think there's one. Or I don't think we've seen evidence. And even in Virginia, and, and You'll, you've got better data on this than I have, but did you see that in, in, you know, in Western Virginia and other places? Did you see that enthusiasm gap in places where, where Trump you know, performed well in the presidential? You know, I think we saw it not in terms of the, of the margin so much, but in terms right. of the turnout. Okay. And Virginia was one of the few elections in, in my memory in which the midday turnout reports actually told us something about what was going to happen. When we saw that turnout in Fairfax and Arlington and Alexandria had already exceeded 2013 by 3 or 4 p.m., and we weren't seeing the same things in, in downstate Virginia, that told us that there was an enthusiasm gap, and it did pan out when we, when we looked at the results. So like, part of the challenge for Republicans is that they're counting on, on Trump voters to save them in 2018. They need them to turn out. And yet Trump's attacks on congressional Republican leaders are driving a wedge within his own party and making it much less likely that those voters will show up to bail out Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. Yes, that's been fairly unhelpful. And I think if that trend continues, depressing our own base and his voters is where you kind of can start to create a perfect storm of bad news. So, and bottom, you know, this was inherent in Liesl's question too. Bottom line, do you think Democrats have a shot of repeating the feat we had in 2006, which is to not lose a single incumbent? It's a great question. And in 2006, you're absolutely right, no Democratic incumbent lost, but there were a few that came close. And if you recall, John Barrow in Georgia had a really close race in 2006. And if there's one Democrat who I think is, is the most vulnerable in the House today, it's Rick Nolan in Minnesota. I know you've, you guys have talked about this race a lot. Allie's going to disagree with you. On right. <laughs> uh, I'll agree he's going to have a very tough race. That district swung heavily towards Trump, no question. Sure. And he's got a primary. He's got, I think, a stronger opponent than he's had the last two cycles. And there's also an independent running uh, who is on the far left. So uh, those, those things conspire to make that race close. And, you know, you talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, you talked about how we have a tougher map this cycle than we had in 2006. So I hear that a lot as someone who's out there trying to convince folks that we have a shot of taking the House back. So I'm going to push back on you on that a little bit. 
Um, no question redistricting in 2010 hurt Democrats in a big way in these House seats, particularly in states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, where we used to have competitive races that Democrats could win, and the Republicans really gerrymandered that and made it very difficult for us um, in, in all of those states. But here's the number I always go back to. I look at the fact that Democrats won 18 seats in 2006 that George Bush had carried just two years before. And they won those seats by an average of seven points. Bush had actually won them by an average of seven points. So if you, you know, average those out, that's a 14-point swing from a Bush district to a Democrat district in 2006. Some of these were as a result of scandal, the Chris Carty seat in Northwest or Northeastern Pennsylvania, for example. But a lot of them were just races like John Hostetler and Brad Ellsworth in Indiana, Baron Hill in Indiana, et cetera. So if we, we won 18 of those seats, which was more than half of the seats that we were really playing in that Bush had carried. So tell me why you think it's so much harder for us now to get to a place where we're winning, let's say, roughly half of the seats that Trump won that are legitimately competitive seats. To be honest, I think part of it's the decline of local media. There's less of an opportunity for candidates to distinguish themselves from the national party brand. Yeah. But look, Democrats have no choice but to compete in a lot of Trump districts. Because, as you know, there are only 23 Republicans in districts that Hillary Clinton won, and Democrats need 24. So they're going to have to uh, go after Republicans who have unique vulnerabilities beyond Trump's unpopularity. And I think of people like Claudia Tenney in New York's 22nd district. This is Binghamton, Binghamton in Utica, New York. And Trump won that district, I believe, by about 18 points. Claudia Tenney only won that race by five. And the reason is she is loathed by a lot of the moderate Republican establishment in that district that supported former Congressman Richard Hanna. Hanna has donated to uh, the Democratic candidate in the 2018 race, Assemblyman Anthony Brindisi. Democrats are very excited he's running. I'm not so sure he'll be able to escape Andrew Cuomo's drag in upstate New York. But that's a race where the Republican incumbents unique unpopularity and unique vulnerability uh, gives Democrats a shot in a Trump district. And we just released a poll there that had the Democrat up by a few points against Tenney, which was surprising to me. I mean, we would have killed for those kinds of numbers in 2006 at this point in the cycle. Yeah. So most of those types of districts are ones that you just recently moved to favor Democrats. Mia Love in Utah, uh, Grotham in Wisconsin 6. So what was your thinking behind moving those at this point in the cycle? Well, to be clear, we still have Republicans favored in those races, but we right. moved them into a more competitive category. But generally, we're seeing Republicans underperform what they should be getting in a neutral environment by about eight points in special elections. And so even in districts that have a significant Republican lean, like Mia Loves in Utah or Glenn Grothman's in Wisconsin, these are places that we should still be watching. So, and let's let's talk about those 23 districts that Hillary Clinton won that are held by a Republican. I have to say, before the Virginia elections a few weeks ago, I would have said that the Democrats' goal should be to win 55 to 60 percent of those districts, that you're not going to be able to win them all, of course. But in Virginia, they actually won 82 percent of the Hillary districts they were competing in. So that made me improve my goals, basically, and say, well, maybe we can do better than that. 
Um, and Democrats know, are going to need to. They're going to need to. They're going to need to do better than that. And not 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 better than 82 percent, let's be clear, but they're going to need to win somewhere, let's say, 75, 80 percent potentially of those Hillary-held districts. If you look back at 2006, there were some prominent moderate Republicans that managed to hold on. Lisa's old boss, Mark Kirk in Illinois, um, Dave Reichert in Washington State, Heather Wilson in New Mexico, Chris Shays in Connecticut. They were in districts that John Kerry had won, and they reelected their Republicans. So what do you think was the key to those folks being reelected, and how do you see the moderate Republican um, prospects for this cycle? We always say that to survive a wave, you have to localize your race and escape your race becoming nationalized. I would boil that down into something simpler. You have to go negative and beat the crap out of your opponent. And let's be honest, those members won largely, I think, by disqualifying their opponents as unacceptable alternatives. And Heather Wilson in New Mexico was a good example. Uh, she ran an ad will play in a bit. Uh, that disqualified her Democratic opponent and allowed her to win by the skin of her teeth in 2006. But look, I do think there are several Republican incumbents heading into 2018 in Clinton districts who have very strong standing and are going to be very difficult for Democrats to dislodge. The two that come to mind are David Valadeo in California 21, who comes across to his voters not as a Tea Party guy, but as a rancher who supports immigration reform. His constituent service operation in the Central Valley has, has impressed a lot of people. And then John Katko in upstate New York and Syracuse. And he's successfully built this image as a prosecutor of gangs rather than a Republican congressional insider. In, in much the same way that Dave Reichert was known for being the King County Sheriff in Washington State. Who caught the Green River Killer. Right. Yes. As a native of the district, I can right. I can tell you that's what people thought about Dave Reichert. Well, look, it's probably not coincidental that both of those members you picked are from districts that have small media markets where they really can get a lot of local press, um, much easier to get you know on the local news in Fresno or Syracuse than it is in Denver, Colorado or Washington D.C. But to your point, just uh, you know, talking about those members specifically, and as you just said, I mean, they are known for something in their district. So even as you have to absolutely disqualify your opponent, and I agree with you 100%, I'm so glad to hear you say that, in fact. <laughs> but you've also, I think, in especially in this environment, and especially in these districts, are you do have to be known as something. You And, and you know, it's we hate saying the brand, but you have to have created a feeling uh, in voters that you are a certain type of person, that you're a certain type of represent, you know, representative for that, that district. And I, and, and I think we saw this a bit in Virginia that, and I fear, a race to the bottom uh, election, Republicans can't win. I think that's very will be very hard for us. I think creating the binary choices, you know, of, of is like of utmost importance always in any race. But I do think the reason why these a lot of these members, like the ones you mentioned, and I'll mention a few others of my personal favorites, like a Mike Kaufman or a Carlos Carbello or Will Hurd, that they have worked so hard to create something. And not to mention, they have been on you know on broadcast TV in their districts for several years running now at, at you know record amounts of money. And so people do really know them. And I, I get more concerned with some of the 
uh, districts that Allie likes to talk a lot about because they're new, like maybe a John Culberson in Texas who, you know, he hasn't, one, he hasn't had a tough race, but also I don't think his voters have that sort of feeling about him at this point. And not that he won't create that and, and they won't have that once they go to the polls, but I think that is very different for, for some candidates or incumbents in those types of situations. Yeah, oftentimes it's the people who have recently had close races that are better prepared right. for political waves, right? And, you know, we talk a lot about whether members' voting records will uh, will save them or, or cause them to lose. And, uh, you know, in 2010, we saw many Democrats who voted for uh, the ACA lose, obviously, but we saw plenty of Democrats who voted against the ACA and who voted against cap and trade lose their seats as well. And I think the key for the Democrats who survived was that their votes came across as authentic because they were they already had a brand that was independent of the Democratic Party before that wave. For example, people like Mike Ross in Arkansas or uh, or Dan Boren in Oklahoma, Mike McIntyre in North Carolina, Jim Matheson in Utah. These were people who, who were known authentically to their voters as conservative Democrats before taking those votes. But there are times when the wave is just too much. I mean, I can't think of a Democrat who did a better job of identifying himself as a different kind of Democrat, um, really branded himself well than John Barrow. And it got him through a bunch of tough elections, but eventually the voters of his district had just decided they didn't want a Democrat, and he was gone. And let's let's face it, he he had a very tough redistricting in 2012. He he had a very weak Republican opponent in 2012, and high black turnout uh, for a presidential year. In 2014, it all went away. Yep. So some of these things come down to to circumstances in the district as well. Well, in thinking about 2006, but and 2010, do you see this cycle shaping up more like 2010 or 2006? I've had a lot of conversations with lots of operatives over the last several months and wondering, like, which is, like, a more apt comparison? You know, I think it's a, a bit more like 2010 in terms of the, the, uh, the, the, the movement we've seen you know, quickly after a presidential race in 2006, there were a lot of factors uh, like the Iraq War, congressional scandal. Uh, we had obviously a response to Hurricane Katrina that was part of the part of the election campaign, and yet uh, that was six years into George W. Bush's term. There was there was kind of a uh, a weariness in the electorate with with Republican control that had set in. Democrats only needed 15 seats to take back the House. Uh, today they need 24, so I think they need a bit bigger wave. But we, we looked at 2010 as the year of the angry white senior, because if you think about who President Obama's coalition was, it was more reliant than ever before on young voters and minorities. And they turned out at record levels in 2008. And guess what? They had never really voted in midterm elections. And without their votes, Democrats could not win in 2010. What I see in 2018 is potentially the year of the angry white college graduate. Because President Trump's coalition was so heavily dependent on white voters without a college degree. And guess what? 
they also don't have a very good track record of showing up in midterm elections. 2018 is on pace to be the, the most highly college-educated electorate we've ever seen. And I think that benefits Democrats in a big way. Well, we saw that in Virginia, and it's mostly breaks down amongst women. Right, and uh, particularly college-educated women. Right. Well, and I, you know, there's something I think about a lot as it relates to 2010, which is a financial disparity issue. Um, there's no question to my mind that Republicans are going to have more resources at their disposal this cycle. They're in the majority. That lends itself to better fundraising generally. We have a lot of Democrats with primaries. Every Democrat pretty much has a primary right now because there's so many people eager to run, um, which I think is, is good to sort of motivate the grassroots to get out and get organizing early. But it also means our nominee will probably be broke the day after they win their, their primary. So that's the reality we face as Democrats, is we are going to be outspent. In 2010, you had a lot of Republican candidates who won that were wildly outspent as well. You know, I think about the Oberstar race in Minnesota or the Dan Maffei and Marie Burkle race, and you look at the dollars that were spent on each side, and those Republicans knocked off an incumbent that spent two, three times as much as they did, even when you take the outside group spending into account. So I'm curious, Dave, in all of your looking at elections over the years, how important is the money really? And is there kind of a baseline level of money a candidate needs to have in order to get their message out? And I don't mean in terms of dollars, but I mean you can't be outspent by five to one, but you can be outspent two to one and still win. How do you, how do you think about that, especially in an environment like this? It's a great question. I actually remember in 2010, looking at the campaign finance reports, in July, I believe Blake Farenthold in Texas had a negative cash on hand balance and went on to win that race uh, against Solomon Ortiz, which was a total stunner, but we had kind of looked into it a month out. Uh, this answer may be unpopular with you guys, but I think money matters less than it did before. And I know you spend, you're used to spending an awful lot of money in house races, uh, but look, I, I, I only think money matters a lot when one side doesn't have it. And we saw in 2008, the DCCC massively outspent the NRCC, and Republicans were dark in so many districts in the summer and the fall and ended up losing particularly a lot of open seats where they just weren't competitive on the airwaves. I think both parties are going to be very well funded in 2018. We saw the parties absolutely go to war in Georgia 6 in a way that I would argue boosted Republican turnout, which um, you know, energy on that side had been dormant, and then all of a sudden you see these uh, tens of millions of dollars being spent on each side and, and Republican voters wake up. But look, I, I think plenty of Democrats will get outspent and still win. I also think there will be Democratic candidates who outraise Republican incumbents, particularly in places like Texas 7th District, where John Culberson looks really unprepared for his race. Recently, uh you all made some pretty significant ratings changes, and that was, was that right after the Virginia election? It was. It was probably 10 days after. Okay, so, and most of them were obviously, as we talked about earlier, they turned it away from the Republican uh, incumbents. So talk a little bit about why you made those changes and what goes into your rating changes process as you move through uh, the election cycle. It's a great question, and I loved uh, Nathan Gonzalez's answer when, uh, when he said, you know, people think that he locks himself in a room with Mountain Dew. Well, <laughs> we I'll freely admit. We want to know your admit, secret sauce here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll freely admit I do most of my writing between the hours of midnight and four. But wow. uh, <laughs> uh, when, 
we're looking at our ratings and constantly reevaluating them. We're talking to plenty of people like you. We're, we're talking with uh, not only campaign managers, but chiefs of staff. We're looking at the polling that the committees are, are producing. We're having plenty of off-the-record conversations. But there's also an element of history at work and looking for parallels. And uh, probably the ratings change that has generated the most buzz is New Jersey's 11th district. We moved the chair of the Appropriations Committee, Republican Rodney Freelingheisen, uh, to toss up. And going back to New Jersey for Thanksgiving, I actually heard a lot about that rating wow. change. <laughs> and uh, the polling certainly shows that that is going to be a race. It's a district that moved heavily away from the Republican Party in 2016, even though Trump still won it by about a point. But there is just a sense that something weird is going on in Morris County. And Rod, the old joke used to be that Rodney Freelingheisen, when he signed his stationery, would sign it Rodney Freelingheisen MC, but it didn't stand for member of Congress. It stood for Morris County because his family goes back <laughs> three centuries yeah. in North Jersey politics. And what's happened is the ground has shifted under his feet. Uh, not only do we see a lot of grassroots energy on the left? You have people who have basically dropped their jobs in that district to walk around the Rayburn House office building with NJ11 for change buttons. But you've also got a uh, Democratic candidate whose resume I think will be difficult to attack. Mikey Sherrill looks like the front runner there. She's a former Navy helicopter pilot, a former federal prosecutor. She doesn't have a voting record. She, I think, offers a, a favorable contrast against someone who's been in Congress a long time, even if he is the appropriations chair. Uh, and he's taken some votes that will certainly be fodder for Democratic ads. And I see it as a little bit analogous to the Chip Kravak race in Minnesota in 2010, <laughs> where you know, he, Jim Oberstar was a powerful House chairman of the Transportation Committee. He had been in that district an awful long time, hadn't really had competitive races, hadn't needed to, to run a real campaign. And you had suddenly a, a groundswell of opposition to, to Obama in that district. You had, uh, I, I remember getting a tip actually in our general inbox at the Cook Political Report from some guy in northern Minnesota who said, you know, I was just at a $25 a head barbecue for this guy, Chip Kravak, and there's something going on here. And we get those all the time. And we sometimes we brush them off as anecdotes. It surely wasn't driven by Chip Kravak. I can right. tell you that. Right. But that's one of the cases where there was kind of something going on. And But it was very under the radar screen for a long time. I mean, a famous story is that a month before the election, Chip Kravak was campaigning in Iowa for another member of Congress <laughs> right. who was you know, facing a tough re-election. Like, I, I really don't think... A lot of folks, including Congressman Jim Oberstar, saw that coming. Right. And Rodney sees it coming. Right. At least he should. Well, he, sh he, he should, but look, he raised $126,000 last quarter. And if you're the House Appropriations Chair, that's that's what you call not making a phone call. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think most Republican incumbents understand this is a, a fairly unfriendly environment. And the smart ones are running absolutely scared slash terrified. And there are some others who just haven't felt the weight of $5 million dropped on your head ever or in a very long time. 
and they have so they either don't know what it feels like or have forgotten on top of what a bad environment really means and so I think you know it's kind of harder for them to process right and I think it's the members who haven't had a race in a while, like Peter Roskam, for example, in Illinois 6, who's, who does sit in a district that voted significantly for Hillary Clinton, who haven't had to flex those muscles in a while and are going to have real money spent against them for the first time in a while. And, and what the Virginia elections showed me was that if you're a Republican in a Clinton district, you don't really get a pass. And so many of the Republicans who we thought of as having very strong ties to their communities in those delegate races in Virginia ended up losing by large margins. The one we thought was the safest, Tim Hugo in Fairfax County, only won by about 100 votes. So even if you're a, a Republican like Peter Roskam, who's had it easy for a long time, 2018 is not going to be easy. I agree with that. And Illinois, uh, in general, is... You know, there's a lot going on at the top of the ticket that is not great for Republicans. Although Peter Oskam and Rodney Freelingheisen, um, I think, are very different in terms of probably how they see their races. I mean, Peter has millions of dollars in the bank, and I mean, he's an absolute like rock star campaigner, and he, he is deeply tied to you know issues in his district. But it, you know, Chicago media market's very expensive, and it's it, it, a district like that 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 went for Hillary. If they're looking for a protest vote, I mean, these are the kind of places that that are hard. Absolutely, and even if you're a rock star, even if you've raised a lot of money, even if you've worked that district hard, you can get swept up in this. And. Uh, it's unclear who Democrats are going to nominate. It looks like Kelly Mazeski is the front runner there. But one advantage for Democrats is Illinois' early primary. Right, it is. Um, so we're going to have to put you on the hot seat and have you make your 2018 prediction. <laughs> From, we don't have to hold you to it. <laughs> sure. Well, look, I, the House is extremely competitive. I, I do uh, the House model for NBC News on election nights and – each time I've done it, I've kind of gone into election night with a pretty good sense of who would end up winning control. I think may, this may be the first year I go into uh, the, the decision desk on election night not having a good sense of who's going to come out on top. I could see the majority being less than 10 seats either way. Right now, uh, simply to avoid being accused of copping out, I, I, I would put Democrats with a slightly higher than, than 50% chance of of retaking control. That's right. And but I, I do guarantee this. I bet you we will know pretty early on in the night if Democrats are going to be within reach here. You sure. know, there's going to be some early returns that come in um, that are going to make it very clear. How are we doing in Virginia 10? How are we doing right. in the Carol Shea Porter open seat in New Hampshire? Right. Um, in Virginia, it was very clear pretty soon that, you know, Democrats had a real shot of taking the assembly. Didn't right. happen narrowly, but. Uh, right. Or even but we'll in see. some of these reach districts like. Virginia 7, yes. Dave Bratt. Exactly, exactly. Um, well, we'll definitely have to have you on again next year as things continue to shake out and you continue to make ratings changes. Um, but in the meantime, because Dave is such a house expert, we asked him to pick our ad of the week this week. And he reached back into another wave election and chose a great ad that shows 
how Republicans can overcome some of the trends that they're facing this cycle. You want to talk about it, Dave? Sure. So in 2006, Heather Wilson uh, was a moderate Republican uh, running for re-election in New Mexico's first district. And this is Albuquerque. This is a district that Republicans could really never win today. But she was pretty popular. Uh, but it was a very tough district, and the sitting uh, attorney general of New Mexico, Patsy Madrid, was Democrat's star recruit. And then Madrid had a Rick Perry moment in a debate, shall we say. But it was probably a bit worse than Rick Perry's moment, and take a listen. Really, we should call Rick Perry's moment a Patsy Madrid moment, right. based on how bad this was. I'm Heather Wilson, and I approve this message. Can you cite something that would give people of New Mexico some kind of reassurance that you will prevent a tax increase? You're president and you have, have voted for a, t a tax relief. And so Patsy Madrid essentially freezes and can't come up with any reason to reassure voters that she won't raise their taxes. And it's not like the Republicans had to go digging for this footage. This was a televised debate that sunk Madrid's campaign and allowed Republicans to save this seat while they lost the House. It's also a good reminder that in these tough districts, the economy, taxes, and spending continue to be a great wedge issue for Republicans. And. Republicans are probably going to need some gifts from Democrats. <laughs> That's right. To this, drive was home. This, this, this was a gift. She had no answers. So if you ask me, every single Democratic media consultant doing media training with their candidates should open the presentation with this ad. Right. So, well, thank you so much for being here, Dave. This was really enlightening, really helpful. Um, and we will uh, we'll check back in with you. Well, you guys are the months. best at what you do. So, so thanks for having Thanks a lot, the Cook Dave. Report on. Thanks so much. <laughs> so thank you for joining us today. You can, of course, follow us on Twitter at House Talk Pod, and you can follow our fabulous guest, Dave Wasserman, at Redistrict on Twitter as well to get all of his insights into house races. We'll be back in two weeks. Mm -hmm.